We're back in Mark chapter 1, and we've come as far as verse 16, where Mark writes and says, And as he, that is Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So this call to follow was a known phrase that a teacher would call disciples to himself and say, follow me. And so uh, they would recognize what he, what's being said here. Come and be my disciple. And he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Uh, the, one other gospel says, I'll make you fishers of men. But this indicates that it's a process and not an instantaneous act. I'll make you become. Jesus was Jesus himself was a fisher of men. In Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50, where he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, this parable, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to the shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is somebody who fishes with a net, and he draws in people. Of course, we're to be co-fishermen with him as we follow him. In verse 18, it says, They immediately left their nets and followed him. As he went, went gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So Jesus has begun his preaching ministry, and as he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, he passes some fishermen. And he calls to them, and they forsake all and follow him. They leave their boats, nets, father, and other workers, and they immediately follow him. Mark's One of Mark's favorite words, immediately. I mean, they, they just drop it. You know, they're in the middle of fastening, fixing a net, and Jesus says, follow me. <laughs> We're on the way. Well, from reading Mark's account, you may get the impression that this is the first, their first encounter with Jesus of Nazareth, but that is not the case. This is not the case of a total stranger walking past and speaking to them, and pow, they leave everything. It is likely that they have heard his preaching in Galilee, because he was going about preaching, as we saw previously. But they knew of him also before that. The Apostle John gives us some background in his gospel over in John chapter 1, verse 35. Apostle John writes and says, Again the next day, and this is after Jesus' baptism when the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, says the next day John the Baptist stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So John points out Jesus to these two disciples. And the two two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? Now, I'm not sure if this is what they really wanted to know. You know, I mean, you're coming after somebody, and he, they, he turns around and says, What do you, what do you want? <laughs> well, we just... And he said to them, Come and see So they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. And it was about the tenth hour, which Roman time would be ten in the morning, Israeli time, four in the afternoon. 
And it says one of the two who heard John speak following him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So these are two of the guys that were called. It doesn't say who the other one was, the other disciple. I think it was probably John Zebedee. <laughs> uh, he's not named here, and that's John typically doesn't name himself. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved in some passages. It says in verse 41, He, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. So the first thing Andrew wants to do is tell his brother. And he brought him to Jesus, and now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone or a rock. Peter is anything but a rock at this point. But he has rock potential. Jesus will make him to become a rock and a, a process. And we see that process as we go through the Gospels. So these men were familiar with Jesus. They knew about him. They likely had heard his preaching concerning the kingdom of God and repentance. And this is the case with, mo case with most people, well, at least in our nation. We hear about Jesus, but maybe we don't quite get it. Maybe we have been impressed with his teachings, fascinated by the account of his miracles, or we like the fact that he cared for the oppressed among men. But we have not been confronted with our need to follow him. Later in Mark, we will read the parable of the sower. Jesus explains that the seed is the word of God sown in the hearts of listeners, but not all seed brings forth fruit. Recall that in the instance of the first, the seed falling by the wayside, the word is snatched away by the devil. Now Matthew writes, and look at it Matthew's gospel because he says it a little differently here that I think helps us understand it. And let me say as we're going through Mark, I'm not seeking to do a harmony of the Gospels or anything, but we will go to other passages when they help us give understanding of what Mark is writing about. Matthew thirteen nineteen, speaking of this parable of the sower and Jesus explaining it, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. So some of the seed goes among those who they don't understand it. Just They hear it, but they don't know what it means. The seed does not have a chance to sprout. It's immediately snatched away. That is, there's no understanding. They are not able or ready to receive it. A person may hear the gospel numerous times without understanding it. It sounds cool, but I don't really get what it's all about. Repentance and faith. Following Jesus with my whole heart. I heard the gospel a number of times before I understood it. I wasn't raised in the church, although I had some exposure through extended family and friends. I heard Billy Graham on television. We only had three stations. And sometimes he was the option, you know. So my mom would have it on TV or something. But I did not understand what the gospel meant. I remember back when I was attending Purdue University in my freshman year, I was in the dorm. And a couple of guys across the hall were believers. I know that now. I just thought they were crazy then, you know. <laughs> but they were believers, and they would try to witness to me and my roommate, you know. And I remember one day, one of the guys was at our door, and I was going in or something, and he was just there, and, you know, and he wanted to know more about Jesus or something. I said no, and just slammed the door in his face. You know? I didn't slam it hard. <laughs> but when I came to the Lord then, I, I also did so with mixed motives. And sometimes people do that. 
The Lord's gracious and long-suffering. He's full of mercy and compassion. He doesn't break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. He works and works to bring us to Himself rightly. But it's at this point of understanding when I hear the gospel and it clicks that suddenly I'm confronted with my need to follow Jesus. I become acutely aware of my need to be forgiven of my trespasses. I'm convicted of my sinfulness by the Holy Spirit. I know that the Lord is calling me to follow Him. What am I going to do? It's not a comfortable feeling. If I come to Jesus, I'm not coming because He has a wonderful plan for my life, even though He does. I'm coming to Him because He's my only hope. I stand in danger of hellfire and separation from God forever. It is His gospel of deliverance and redemption that drives me to seek His face, not the gospel of prosperity and benefits. Those are real, but the only path there is through the cross, and the cross condemns me. But the one who hung upon the cross offers me forgiveness and cleansing from my sin. I had a hand in nailing Jesus to the cross. I'm guilty. But I can rejoice in the cross of Christ Jesus because in it he paid the full penalty that I owe for my sin before God. Well, Andrew, Peter, James, and John are at that point of confrontation, the point of decision. When Jesus says, come follow me, a decision cannot be postponed. Wait, Jesus, I have a few more holes to mend in this net. I need to catch a few more fish. We're told they immediately left their boats, nets, father, and co-laborers and began to walk where Jesus walked. It's at this point of understanding the gospel and the call to follow that great danger lies. I must decide how I'm going to respond. Will I follow or will I not? And once understanding comes, if I do not respond to his call, a hardening of the heart will begin. Each time I refuse his invitation because... Each time I refuse his invitation because he is persistent, besides being patient, he has been called the hound of heaven, you may be aware. You can't run, you can't hide from the hound of heaven. Each time I refuse his invitation, he's persistent, he keeps calling, a little more callous will encase my heart. And if I continue to resist, then I will find that eventually I cannot respond. I have no desire And whatever understanding I once had will be turned to misunderstanding or even opposition. And thus we read a warning in Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Down in verse 12, he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. When is the point of no return? No one can say but God. I heard someone recently talking about the phrase, the God of the second chance. And he said, I don't believe in the God of the second chance. I believe in the God of another chance. If it was only a second chance, none of us would make it. But if he is calling you, don't put him off. Surrender your life to him today and know all the good that he has for you. 
Following Jesus in our day is different than it was for Andrew, Peter, James, and John. They literally followed Jesus. We have no physical body to follow around. We will likely never hear his voice audibly giving us directions. I don't entirely rule that out because people have experienced that, but it's not the common experience. We follow him today by keeping his word, following the commands that he's given us. For example, love one another. The means of following is not the same, but the standard of following remains the same. And Jesus gives us that in Luke 9, verse 23. What does it mean to follow Jesus? He says to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, that is, self-rule and self-direction, and take up his cross daily, dying to the self-life, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? In Luke 14.33, Jesus says, Likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Forsaking all is not the same for us as it was for them. They walked away physically to follow him physically. A clear direction in following. Our experience is more like the Apostle Paul. He didn't know Jesus in the flesh. He was struck down on the road. We may not be struck down on the road. But he didn't follow Jesus physically. Paul left his course in life and changed direction completely. Indeed, he proceeded in the opposite direction of that to which he was going. This is forsaking all. The Lord may give you more specific things. He may speak to your heart about something. He says, I want that, you know, forsake that. Give it to me. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, we see Paul's experience, his testimony. He says, what things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. Indeed, yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Uh, rubbish is scubalon. That's any refuse as the excrement of animals, offscorings, rubbish, dregs, things worthless and detestable. You've heard it referred to as dung before. That's a good phrase. I count it as dung. That I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is of if which is from God by faith. So we forsake the idea that we may earn favor from God, the idea that we may be acceptable acceptable to Him by any other means than Jesus' righteous work. Paul goes on to say that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So we forsake all by counting all things as loss or rubbish in comparison to following Jesus and all that he commands us. The way in which we follow, in some ways, we each have in common the commands of the Lord for every Christian. But he also has a particular plan for each one of us who follows him. He gives differing tasks and differing gifts according to his plan for each one. We may be called to pass out tracts or preach on the street corner. To minister to the ill or the infirm. To minister to those in prison or to the poor and destitute. To provide support to the body of Christ and the gifts the Lord provides. 
We are called to good works in Jesus, but not good works as an end in themselves. We do good works on the way to fulfilling God's purpose for the church, declaring the good news of salvation. To stop short at good works without the sharing of the good news is cruel, not loving. You notice here that each person has to respond individually. It's not, come follow your friends with me. It's a personal, individual matter. We must respond to the call without regard to anyone or anything else. Andrew, Peter, James, and John each had to decide if they would follow Jesus. It's nice if you have others who will follow you, but as follow with you. But as the song says, though none go with me, still I will follow. We will follow if we are alone. Will we follow if we are alone, if all others forsake us? If you forsake all for Jesus, some may forsake you. Commit them to God, but you follow Jesus. We believers are all in this together, yet it is Jesus and you alone. Recall what Jesus said to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, John 21, verse 18, after Peter is restored to the ministry after his denial. Jesus says to him in verse 18, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. So this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. So Peter was going to be carried to an upside down cross where he would be crucified. And when he had spoken this to him, he said to him, follow me. This is what's going to happen to you, Peter, but follow me. And Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord. Well, this is what the disciple said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? I want to know what's going to happen with John. (laughs) And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. It is his will for you, not for someone else, for which you must be concerned. And then it says, This saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Now, some people think that John didn't die, that he's still around somewhere. You know, I don't think we would know if he was still around. Uh, but. You know, you could see his life experience giving further fire to the rumor because, you know, he was probably the oldest disciple when he did pass away and and they tried to kill him and they couldn't, uh, trying to boil him in oil. So it's you who must decide to follow wherever he may lead and to serve him however he may choose. Jesus tells these men that if they follow him, he will make them fishers of men. It's difficult to lure true fishermen away from fishing. Jesus doesn't change their fishing desire, but he changes the object of their fishing. It is much more satisfying to catch souls for the Lord than soul for the belly. Fishermen get hooked on this. But we are all to cast the net or the bait or the hook. One has said fishing is an art and so is soul winning. It requires patience. Often there are lonely hours of waiting. It requires skill in the use of bait, lures, or nets. 
It requires discernment and common sense in going where the fish are running. This reminded me of George Markey. He um, founded the church in Crawfordsville, the Calvary Chapel in Crawfordsville. And one time he went on a short-term mission trip to the Ukraine. And when he came back, it was like, I'm moving over there. i got to go over there, you know. And he he talked about how he would, when he was passing out tracks in Crawfordsville on the streets, people in Crawfordsville needed Jesus as well, you know, and the church is still there. But uh, George said, you know, you pass out tracks and they'd just be littering the ground, you know, people eh, not interested. He said over there, people were lining up <laughs> to take what they had to give away and and they were coming and asking questions and all. He said, I want to go where the, basically where the fish are biting. I don't think he used that uh, phrase. But he wanted to go where people were hungry for the gospel. And then it's similar to fishing in, a, in that it requires persistence. A good fisherman is not easily discouraged, and there are discouraging times, and it requires quietness. The best policy is to avoid disturbances and to keep self in the background. If we go on to Mark chapter 1, verse Verses 21 through 28. It says, Then they went into Capernaum, he and the men who were following him. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. So they went to Capernaum. The Capernaum was a city on the upper western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus did a lot of miracles in Capernaum. It's the translation is that it's the city of Nahum. So you read Nahum, the prophet in the Old Testament. This is apparently where he was from. Uh, Josephus says it was a city of 10,000. But others say 1,000 to 1,500. Could have easily been 10,000. And some of the critics who are really critical of the Bible, they say it was probably around around 10,000 population. It was on a major trade route the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea. And so when people were going from the area around Mesopotamia uh, down to Egypt, back and forth, it was right there on this, this major trade route. And so there was a receipt of custom there, a taxing station that the Romans had. They collected taxes there. That's where Matthew's tax collecting station was set up. There was a Roman garrison there. So the live activity there when Jesus went there, and, and he did, many of his mighty works were done in Capernaum. And you remember in Matthew eleven twenty three, when he speaks of these things, he says, to, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And so they're responsible because of all the, the, that they had, all that they had received. Uh, responsible for how they dealt with that. So he goes on the Sabbath. Uh, he enters the synagogue. Uh, the, there is a synagogue that's been excavated in Capernaum, and it's a. It's like there was a synagogue here, and then there was one underneath, and they think that one uh, underneath was probably the one where Jesus taught. Synagogue means to come together, so it's a gathering place. And uh, Peter's house also has likely been found. It's about 84 to 100 feet away from this synagogue that they've found. And he begins to teach. And it says, they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This 
Uh, astonished is to be struck with amazement, to be astonished to fear, to strike a person out of his senses by some strong feeling, such as fear, wonder, or even joy. And so Jesus comes here and he begins to teach in the synagogue, and you can imagine what it would be like you know, being taught by Jesus himself. He teaches them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Joe Foch describes it as the Word of God teaching the Word of God. <laughs> They've never heard anyone speak like this before. Indeed. You know, even the men who came to arrest him said, nobody ever spoke like this guy, you know. And so, what would it have been like to be there in the synagogues or traveling with Jesus and hearing him? Explain? You know, we just get discourses and pieces and all. And they're good. So there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he cries out. This is a deep, throaty, terrible cry. Uh, If you've been around anyone who had an unclean spirit or is possessed by a demon, you may have heard. You know, you've seen the movies, no doubt. You know, (laughs) head spins around, you know. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And literally, this is be muzzled, be gagged, shut up. (laughs) That's what Jesus is telling him. And come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, and this is a screech, he came out of him. And then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. It's the first time he's going into the synagogue and teaching in Capernaum. So Jesus amazed them with his teaching. The teachers in Jesus' day would quote this rabbi or that rabbi as to what something meant, but they would not take a stand or give their own opinion as to what a passage means. They say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, but Rabbi so-and-so said that. Before these events surrounding John the Baptist's birth, God had been silent for about 400 years. No word from God. No prophet receiving messages by the Spirit. And then comes this man speaking with authority on all things. What a shock. Henry Morris says, Jesus never guessed... He never expressed an opinion or suggested a possible interpretation of Scripture. Everything he taught was with absolute authority, for he was the very Word of God. Never did he need to retract anything he said. Oh, would that our leaders would be in that situation. Never did he need to retract anything he said. Never did he leave unsaid anything he should have said. Indeed, no man spake like this man. It happens that a man with an unclean or foul spirit is present in the synagogue on this Sabbath day, and he recognizes who Jesus is. A lot of the people didn't recognize who Jesus was, but this guy recognized it. The unclean spirits or demons knew who Jesus was, and numerous times they would testify to his identity as the Holy One of God. Jesus did not want their testimony, nor the notoriety that would result. When performing a healing, Jesus would often tell the person not to broadcast it. There was a situation and a timing for everything in the life of Jesus. He actually walked without fail in the wonderful plan the Father had for his life. 
in John 7 and verse 30, he told the people, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's what they're saying about it. Um, but Jesus would often talking about uh, this phrase, my hour has not yet come in the Gospel of John. There was a time and a place for each thing. And so Jesus didn't want that testimony of an evil spirit, similar to Paul when this uh, young girl was following him in Acts 16 and declaring, these men tell you the way of God or a way to God. And he finally got so frustrated with her, he turned around rebuked her and cast that demon out of her. When the unclean spirit was cast out by Jesus, the people were astonished. They were not yet asking, who is this? But they were asking, what is this? They related the casting out of the spirit to the authority which Jesus spoke. Is this some new doctrine? No, this is who, not what. But if you're thinking it's some new doctrine, maybe I can learn it. You know, Maybe I can carry this out. The unclean spirit is dwelling within the man, and Jesus commands the spirit to go out of him. This is Mark's first recorded miracle. And we'll see later that some men are demon-possessed or literally demonized, and the demons are cast out by Jesus, which indicates that they that being demonized is having a demon or a devil living within, sharing your abode. Some teach that believers in Jesus can be demonized, but God will not share his abode with the devil, and the Holy Spirit indwells all true believers. A believer may be under spiritual attack or oppressed by an evil spirit because they have unwisely opened themselves up to demonic activity, but they cannot be possessed. Although it is possible that one who professes to be a Christian is not genuinely so. Many of these demons that are supposedly cast out today are, as we talked about before, works of the flesh, gluttony, anger, drunkenness, immorality, etc. The flesh cannot be cast out. It must be put to death. Someone wondered, is it, it, it is interesting to see how often he cast out demons in synagogues. Would liberal churches today correspond to the synagogues? In Israel and in modern times, elaborate rituals sometimes surround rites of exorcism. You know, if you've seen the movie The Exorcist, I never have been able to watch that all the way through. You know, I don't really care to at this point, but it was too much for me. Too too real. You know, too much reality there. But the Jewish priests of the day and the sons of Sceva in Acts 19, I think, they would go through these rituals whereby they would seek to cast out demons. Now, one of the rituals that was used was putting a ring in the nose and the, this demon would be drawn out of the body, you know, through the through the nose. Jesus doesn't need any rituals, just a word of command and the demon must go. Now demons are quite religious. They love going to church. They seek to they seek to corrupt the truth and turn people away from God. It's interesting that false teachers are found within the church or within false semblances of the church, attacks may come from without, but false teaching is promulgated within, the better to deceive. After casting out this unclean spirit, Jesus immediately becomes famous. From this point forward, massive crowds will seek him out, and he will seek to minister to them all. In Mark chapter 1, verse, verses 29 through 34 then, says, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. 
But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, but he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. So the sun sets, it says they brought to him all who were sick and demon-possessed, and this indicates it's a steady stream. They just keep on coming. Yeah. Why did they come after sunset? Well, the Sabbath was over. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter was married. He was the first pope. Andrew also lived in the house. And James and John come along as well since they've decided to follow Jesus. And we know from Luke that these four men were partners in the fishing business. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. This is the first recorded healing by Mark. But it's quickly followed by multitudes. She served them. She was immediately and completely healed. Word had gotten out that Jesus could do stuff. And they were coming to have him do stuff. After sunset, the Sabbath being ended, they brought all to Jesus who were needing healing or deliverance. The whole city was gathered at the door. Nobody stayed home to watch, you know, TV. Less than three channels then. Everybody in the whole city comes out. He healed many, cast out many demons whom he did not allow to speak. Is Jesus trying to keep his identity secret? I don't think so. I think he wants people to come to a recognition of who he is by some other means than the voice of demons. Let them hear his words and see his works and draw their own conclusions. Some today command demons to speak when before they're, as they're trying to cast them out and they accept their testimony as true, whatever they say when they speak. I think that's a grave error. You know, Demons are not in the business of telling people the truth. Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39 says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. He gets up in the middle of the night and goes out, basically, you know, and they wake up and, where'd Jesus go? We're supposed to be following him. We don't know where he went. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. You don't realize how popular you are, Jesus. You know, you come back into Capernaum. Everybody is going to want to talk to you. And Jesus says, well, let's go back because that's why I came, to be famous. He says to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also for this purpose I have come forth. He came to preach the kingdom to those who would hear. Uh, It reminds me of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which Jesus did read in the synagogue. I think Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach. Good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And you recall Jesus closed the scroll at that point, and he said, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He goes on to talk about the 
the day of the vengeance of our God. Well, there wasn't time for that yet, so Jesus stops at that point. Verse 39, he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. So after a very busy evening, Jesus rises a long while before daylight and he goes to pray. The prayer life of Jesus is very interesting. Jesus knew that pressure and busyness should drive us towards prayer, not from prayer, David Guzik says. There was a saying years ago, you see it, you see it on people's desks or bumper stickers, a man too busy to pray is busier than God wants him to be. I'm sure that Jesus prayed continually or without ceasing. He had this continual communion with the Father, yet he takes special times to be alone with the Father. If Jesus needed to spend solitary time in prayer to the Father, how much more do we? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 6, he says, You, when you pray, go into your room. When you shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. There are times and places for public prayer, and we find Jesus doing that, but we need that quiet time, private time with the Lord. Personal prayer is vitally needed and yet most easily neglected. Prayer should not be a personal matter, I'm sorry, be a matter of personal convenience, but of self-discipleship or discipline and sacrifice. I had a hard time even reading this morning in my notes. Prayer should not be a matter of personal convenience, but of self-discipline and sacrifice. Does this explain why so much of our service is ineffective? You know, we are told to watch and pray. Or pray with watchfulness. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 18 and 19. After Paul expounds on the armor of God. He comes to the end and says. Praying always with all prayer. And supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end. With all perseverance and supplication. For all the saints. And he says. And for me that utterance may be given to me. That I may open my mouth boldly. To make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray for pastors and preachers. They need prayer for sure. So the disciples finally find Jesus, but he doesn't go back to Capernaum. He leaves behind popularity and success, but they will also be ahead. He gives a glimpse of his purpose in coming to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. His purpose at this time is to proclaim the nearness of the kingdom of God and to invite all to repent and believe. This will continue to be his message as his further purposes unfold. Above all, he has come to do the Father's will. Jesus is not driven by the approval of men, nor is he swayed by their opposition. He does not measure success by numbers. He knew faith that was genuine and that which was insincere. Uh, William MacDonald says he consistently avoided any superficial emotional demonstration that would have put the crown before the cross. Jesus begins to do a circuit around all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, casting out demons, and he exercises all the authority of heaven. What a time to be alive and in that area of the world. Mark 1, verses 40 through 45. Now a leper came to him. Uh, Luke points out, or it says he was full of leprosy, which would indicate this is in the advanced stages of the disease and quite a deformed person, probably, this man who comes. Uh, we might think of it in reference, you know, the 
a lot of leprosy, Hansen's disease, the modern disease has been brought under control because it's it's caused by caused by bacteria. And so they've been able to uh, cut it way back. But when we think about different stages of hopelessness, you know, we might think of cancer and somebody with stage four cancer. Uh, so this guy, you know, would have had stage four leprosy maybe or something. He was in an advanced state. He comes to Jesus and he implores him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I'm willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned them and sent sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Right. But go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter. King James Version says he blazed it abroad. He set a wildfire so that Jesus could no longer openly enter, it says the city, but it's really, it's, there's no definite article. He couldn't enter cities anymore but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. It didn't, didn't change the fact that people were flocking to him. Well, we see Jesus' compassion in dealing with an unclean leper. Leprosy was a terrible and dread disease. It still is for those who have contracted it, uh, resulting in loss of appendages many times and isolation from society. The term leprosy... Uh, including leper, lepers, leprosy, and leprous, occurs 68 times in the Bible, 55 times in the Old Testament, and 13 times in the New Testament. Uh, In the Old Testament, the instances of leprosy most likely meant a variety of infectious skin diseases. And you'll see that as you read through Leviticus. You'll see dealing with different things. Leprosy was probably a broader term than we think of it. Uh, even mold and mildew on clothing and walls was was termed, you know, leprosy. The precise meaning of the leprosy in both the Old and New Testaments is still in dispute, but it probably includes the modern Hansen's disease and infectious skin diseases. For many centuries, leprosy was considered a curse of God, often associated with sin, and I'm certain that was the case in the day of Jesus. It did not kill, but neither did it seem to end. Instead, it lingered for years, causing the tissues to degenerate and deforming the body. Its symptoms start in the skin and peripheral nervous system outside the brain and spinal cord. So the person begins to develop neuropathy. They start losing feeling. Uh, We'll see that one of the characteristics of this is they no longer feel pain in these areas where they have neuropathy. There are other people like our brother Steve who's developed neuropathy and he has continual pain. <coughs> so these symptoms start in the skin, peripheral nervous system, then spread to other parts such as the hands, feet, face, and earlobes. Patients with leprosy experience disfigurement of the skin and bones, twisting of the limbs, and curling of the fingers to form the characteristic claw hand. Facial changes include thickening of the outer ear and collapsing of the nose. You can see photos of people with leprosy online if you really want to. 
Tumor-like growths called lepromas may form on the skin and in the respiratory tract, and the optic nerve may deteriorate. The largest number of deformities develop from loss of pain sensation due to extensive nerve damage. For instance, inattentive patients can pick up a cup of boiling water without flinching. They don't feel the, the heat. The leprosy bacillus destroys nerve endings that carry pain signals. Therefore, patients with advanced leprosy experience a total loss of physical pain. And when these people cannot sense touch or pain, they tend to injure themselves or be unaware of injury caused by an outside agent. Um, I apologize for reading this next sentence. In fact, some leprosy patients have had their fingers eaten by rats in their sleep because they were totally unaware of it happening. The lack of pain receptors could not warn them of the danger. So there is a purpose in pain. We may, you know, sometimes if it's severe, it's very difficult to deal with. But the lack of pain, until the kingdom comes, can be a problem too. Um, This is likened to sin, of course. Leprosy is likened to sin because of the lack of, the loss of sensitivity and, and the destruction that it brings. Well, the priests were given training in diagnosing biblical leprosy. The laws concerning leprosy are found in Leviticus 13 and 14, if you want to read those chapters. Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46, it says, Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean, unclean. It's after he's diagnosed with leprosy, this is his life. He has to tear his clothes, so it's like somebody in mourning, but he's wearing torn clothes all the time. His head's bare. He has to cover his mustache, but you notice it's only a single covering. He didn't have to double double cover his mustache or triple. Or, yeah. And he had to cry, unclean, unclean. This is to warn everybody around him, stay away from me. Total isolation. He shall be unclean, it says. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. And his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now there are leper colonies, and leper colonies would develop because you've already got it. You know, no point in being concerned about spreading it to the other people. Uh, if you've seen Ben Hur, you know there's a scene in there with his said his mother and his sister that yeah, are infected with leprosy. Notice also that it is those who were ill that were quarantined, not the well. He he had to separate himself from everybody else, but they didn't shut everything down. This is the only time in history when those who are well have been quarantined, and it's been causing incalculable damage, and incalculable literally. We can't know how much damage it has caused. Well, Leviticus 14, 2 through 7, we see the law concerning the cleansing of the leper. And it says, This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, because he can't come into the camp. And the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall command to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds, cedarwood, scarlet, and hyssop, And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop, and dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed 
from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. So one one bird killed as a sacrifice, the other showing that that this guy is free. I mean, to have this kind of a disease and and totally isolated, and then all of a sudden you're you're given your certificate of cleanness, you know, and you can go back. And a leprous person would not be accepted back into the community or even family unless the priest examined him and pronounced him to be clean. This disease had no known or natural cure. Yet the Lord gave a command for the leper who had been cleansed. Perhaps some biblical leprosy went into remission on its own if it was some kind of a skin blemish. But beyond that possibility, a miraculous cure was the only other option. There were only three who were healed of leprosy in the recorded history of Israel before this man. Anybody? Miriam? Miriam? who had rebelled against Moses' authority and and she was struck leprous and Moses prayed for her and she was healed. Naaman. Naaman the Syrian. He wasn't even Israeli. A Syrian general who dipped himself seven times into Jordan and he came out skinned like a baby. You know, his skin was good. (laughs) Uh, The other one was somebody you don't normally think of and that's Moses. And it was a sign that he was given, one of the signs he was given to the people to show that he came from God. He would stick his hand inside his robe, pull it out, and it's leprous. I mean, the whole thing. And then he put it in, he pull it out, and he's healed of leprosy. So, not the same kind of healing. And then we know that Uzziah the king was cursed with leprosy, and he was never healed. But what a testimony this man that Jesus healed could give to the priest. He would have been pronounced unclean by a priest. And they had never seen such a case cleansed. Since lepers were never healed, these priests had never conducted this ceremony. And when they had to look up the procedure for this ceremony and had to carry it out for the first time, it would be a strong witness that the Messiah was among them. Wow, here we got a guy that's been healed of leprosy. This doesn't happen. You know, what's going on? And we know that many priests believed in Jesus in the book of Acts. No doubt uh, some because of the things they'd witnessed as they received the testimonies of people about their encounters with Jesus. I wonder how the priest reacted when confronted with someone who said they'd been cleansed of leprosy. Okay, let me get out my hazmat suit and I'll be right with you. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 it says the word of God spread. This is after the uh, appointment of the Deacons, word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You could see with their training and background, as it became more clear to them, it'd be like, hey, Jesus is the one that I've been doing all this stuff about. So Jesus heals this leprous man with a word. Immediately when he had spoken, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. The word was, I'm willing, be cleansed. The word of Jesus commands great authority still. Jesus did not need to touch this man. He could have said, stay back, 20 feet away, please, you know, and just said the word. The guy would have been healed the same way. Why did Jesus touch him? Out of compassion for the man. Nobody had touched this guy for years, probably, if he was in an advanced state of stage of leprosy. No human touch. 
Jesus could have stayed at a distance and said, Ew, I don't want to come near you. But I guess I'll say the word, and then maybe I can touch you. But he draws near to the one who is afflicted, touches the one who is in need, has compassion on the sinner who turns to him. Jesus did not stand apart from our sinfulness, but took it upon himself so that we could be set free. Under the law, a person becomes ceremonially unclean when he touches a leper. No one did this voluntarily. Also, there was, of course, the danger of contracting the disease. But the Holy Son of Man identified himself with the miseries of mankind, dispelling the ravages of sin without being tainted by them. And when Jesus touched this man, rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the man became clean. Jesus tells him to keep this quiet. Just go to the priest, offer the sacrifice as a witness to your healing. But he goes out and blabs the news to everyone. And who can blame him? To be healed miraculously and not be able to tell someone would be very difficult, especially of such a dread disease. Something happened to me, but I can't tell you about it. (laughs) So what does Jesus do? Does he rescind the healing? Sorry, buddy, but if you can't obey my orders, you know, and your leprosy is back. No, of course he doesn't do that. He understands better than anyone how difficult it would be to stay silent. But the result for Jesus is not great. He can't stay in town anymore. But everywhere he goes, the people follow. Jesus invites all to follow him. But many who follow him do so with mixed motives. Some seek only the temporal benefits that Jesus can give. Healing, food, deliverance from evil spirits. And as we've seen, Jesus lays down the criteria for those who would follow him in reality. Some did know the greater benefit of following Jesus in truth. They followed him as their Lord and Master. They knew that they needed above all else reconciliation to their Creator. If there was is to be any kind of reconciliation of man to man for whatever cause, it will first require reconciliation of men with our Creator God. Jesus calls today to the empty heart. He brings healing and reconciliation between God and man. You may not be healed physically in this life, although he's certainly able to do so, but he guarantees the greater healing of souls in relationship to God. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, he says, For to this you were called, and he's talking about suffering unjustly, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed." For you were like sheep going astray, but now have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so Peter quotes from Isaiah 53, by whose stripes you were healed. But he applies it entirely to a spiritual connotation. You were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The healing we need from Jesus is a healing from the effects of the curse of sin. Physical degeneration, death, 
separation from God. Jesus heals us if we return to the shepherd and overseer or Lord of our souls, the one who is the ruler of our soul. And he brings healing and restoration on the greater level, healing in the spiritual realm. That healing is yours today if you will turn to him in faith. And then if as a believer you've not been following Jesus as you should, as you, should you can be restored to fellowship with him today as well. He invites us to come, confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just as this leper was entirely cleansed of leprosy, he will cleanse us.